Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Deidre Tyler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jonathan Hunt and Simon Miles, author of The Reagan Moment, America, the World in the 1980s. How are you both doing today? Very good. Thank you. Well, thanks for having us. You're welcome. Now, you started the book talking about the misery index of the 1980s. Can you explain this more to the audience? Sure. So when Reagan entered office in January of 1981, uh, he did so on the back of a series of criticisms of the preceding administration under uh, the Democratic president, Jimmy Carter. And the way in which uh, Reagan's campaign underscored what they claimed were the failures of the Carter uh, years was this combination of unemployment and inflation. And I suppose in early 2022, I probably don't need to explain to our listeners uh, the political effects that inflation can have on American voters. Uh, We tend not to appreciate when something that cost $3 a couple of months ago suddenly costs $4, and we tend to notice it. So the combination of this in the late 1970s, as well as an elevated unemployment rate, uh, which I believe reached as high as 7 or 8% toward the end of Jimmy Carter's presidency, really opened an uh, avenue for Ronald Reagan to claim that his administration would bring prosperity back to American society, along with strong and principled leadership in the rest of the world. And I think it's really important to emphasize the sense that this wasn't just uh, confined to the American domestic sphere. Uh, in that many people in the United States and indeed around the world were looking at international relations at the end of the 1970s and had a pretty strong sense that the West, including the United States, was at best on the back foot uh, and at worst might have actually seemed to have been losing the Cold War vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, the growth of the Soviet uh, military, Uh, The fact that for all of the reasons that the United States was suffering from inflation that John just outlined, the broadly autarkic oil exporting Soviet Union and its allies were somewhat insulated from the the shocks of globalization that were reverberating around the United States. So there was not only, of course, as you said, Deirdre, the misery index, but there was also a really prominent sense, I think, of pessimism. Uh, not just amongst the American people, but even in the person of someone like Ronald Reagan, who is sort of remembered as, you know, for better or for worse, the avatar of American exceptionalism and kind of the ultimate optimist in many ways. His message during the 1980 campaign is not only just as John said that the Carter administration has mismanaged economics, it's also that the Carter administration has mismanaged 
America's prosecution of the Cold War and that someone needs to right the ship. Thank you. Now, tell the audience a little bit about yourselves and how you became interested in this excellent project. So uh, let me go first. This is Jonathan. Uh, my interests uh, came out of, uh, you know, sort of questions that were arising among international historians, historians of U.S. foreign relations. And uh, our field, uh, I think like many fields, we tend to uh, go through certain waves. And after years of uh, focus on the 1960s, and in particular, the ramifications of the Vietnam War, uh, and then an increasing focus on the 1970s, which has tended to be treated as the kind of 20th century's cul-de-sac, uh, that began to unearth the various ways in which uh, globalization, uh, reorientation of U.S. foreign policy, uh, increasing Soviet adventurism uh, in the third world, and eventually Dong Xiaoping's policies of opening and reform uh, in the People's Republic of China had actually laid the groundwork for many of the major historical developments of subsequent decades. So in part, I think this was an opportunity as uh, new documents, you know, historians are ultimately relying upon primary sources, documents from the 1980s, not only in U.S. archives like the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, the National Archives uh, outside of Washington, D.C., but also international archives. Uh, there had emerged, I think, a sort of wave of scholarship by both more established academic historians, uh, a younger generation of uh, historians, uh, among whom I think Simon and I count ourselves, that provided this unique opportunity to retell the stories, not only of uh, the Ronald Reagan presidential administrations, but also the world in the 1980s. And it tends to be a story that we think we know well. There's a fair amount of triumphalism that we associate with the 1980s, uh, as the country seemed to go from Jimmy Carter's Maliers uh, to uh, this, you know, uber confidence of the unipolar moment under George H.W. Bush. Uh, but I think both Simon and I wanted to uh, survey Reagan's foreign policies uh, in the context of, you know, these really shifting forces of the 19, you know, around the world in order to develop maybe a fuller accounting for the myriad ways in which the world had changed uh, in this uh, important decade. So occupying a position, as I do, I'm an assistant professor at the Sanford School of Public Policy here at Duke University. Um, I've always enjoyed thinking about ways to bring the past and the present sort of into conversation. And it seems to me like we might be, or at least many people feel like we are at the end of a historical moment, which we could probably reasonably trace back to the 1980s. Um, the Reagan administration and then the George H.W. Bush administration and the end of the Cold War. Uh, personally, my, my first book, Engaging the Evil Empire, uh, is about U.S.-Soviet relations in the first half of the 1980s and is quite uh, focused on the relationship between Washington and Moscow. So I was very curious about trying to bring a lot more perspectives into the conversation, people who you know, I, I work primarily in Soviet and Eastern Bloc archives, people who could <clears throat> bring on 
uh, a much more international point of view. Uh, and I was excited to be part of, of something which would really address the whole sort of 360 degrees of U.S. foreign policy under the Reagan administration. So this book began as a conference uh, at the William P. Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin, of which John and I are both uh, graduates, that brought together the authors who you see in the book and also some, some others uh, to have a pretty uh, rich conversation over a few days to uh, think about all of the various contours of U.S. foreign policy during the decade, the various ways that we could approach it, the various kind of themes and concepts that we could use uh, to understand it. And then that gave, uh, gave way to the, the book that, that uh, we're here to talk about now. And, and I think that that goal of, of telling the story of American foreign policy throughout the decade was, was really uh, very much realized in, in the contributions you've got here. Thank you. There's so much rich history regarding Reagan um, and the Cold War. I would like for you to elaborate more on the modernization of the armed forces and the role that President Reagan played there. Happily, uh, I think that's a really important uh, element of the story. And at, at Duke, I teach a course on uh, the history and, and theory of strategy. And so, of course, we talk a lot about uh, the Reagan administration and the defense uh, procurement choices that were made then, also the doctrinal choices that were made then. And so I will uh, restrain myself from, from getting uh, too wonky uh, about airland battle and the big five and so on and so forth. But, but I think we need to start with a shift in how the United States thought about war fighting, which of course in the in the nuclear age is, is a very fraught proposition. But in the wake of, for example, the Vietnam War and the doctrinal uh, sort of signposts of the 1970s, which were very much focused on responding to Soviet aggression, uh, were not focused really, or at least it was felt very strongly in the military, not focused on or really didn't provide for any kind of initiative taking. Uh, during the 1980s, the Reagan administration, I think, recognized something which the Soviet Union was not exactly shy about. There's a fascinating moment in the very early portion of that decade where Marshal Nikolai Agarkov, who is the chief of the general staff of the Soviet Union, is talking to, which is the Soviet Union's highest military official, that's the equivalent of the American chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, is bemoaning to, I believe it's a New York Times reporter, uh, that in the United States, children play with computers. Uh, in the Soviet Union, they can't get enough computers for the defense ministry. Uh, and that in integration of technology, uh, that extreme acceleration of the tempo of military operations was really something that the United States capitalized on uh, in order to drive home its qualitative edge over the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact's continued quantitative superiority uh, of troops in, uh, in, in Europe. And so you see a series of military choices, both in procurement, like purchasing or, or fielding uh, systems like the Apache helicopter, which was basically a can opener for Warsaw Pact tanks, the uh, Black Hawk utility helicopter, which enabled high-speed mobility 
uh, and situational awareness, Patriot um, anti-aircraft uh, anti, uh, and anti-projectile defense systems and things like that that made the U.S. military much more lethal. Uh, and then a doctrinal shift in the form of airland battle, which really focused on pressing that advantage even further, focusing on simultaneity of attacks, of overwhelming the enemy with information uh, and forcing the enemy to react to out-of-date information because you were fighting at such high speed. And the Reagan administration from up in the sky with the B-2 bomber to down on the ground with the uh, M-1 Bradley um, infantry fighting vehicle was making choices that supported this much more aggressive approach to war fighting in the 1980s. Okay, thank you. Now, I, I'm just looking at relationships and connections. How did President Reagan rally behind Margaret Thatcher and Pope Paul, and why was that so important? Well, I think for the Reagan administration, uh, there was always a question of uh, partnerships within uh, what was defined as the as the quote unquote uh, free world, and I think for Reagan and especially for the Electoral Coalition that brought him into office, that eventually delivered an overwhelming victory in the 1984 presidential election. Uh, there was a tendency to to look out and find uh, governments, to find uh, political actors with whom uh, they shared certain fundamental values. Uh, for Reagan and his moral majoritarians, the party line Republicans uh, that filled his cabinet, that filled his government, uh, there was, I, I think it's fair to say scholars have found, uh, a definition of human rights that emphasized religious freedom uh, above many other uh, uh, sort of uh, many other objectives within the larger human rights movement, everything from uh, free speech and a free press to uh, freedom from arbitrary arrest or torture. Uh, and the notion of religious freedom as animating uh, U.S. foreign policy in ways uh, that just hadn't been seen in previous decades and uh, in the 1980s led uh, Reagan's White House to turn to uh, the first Polish pope, uh, the uh, you know uh, real votary for uh, Catholicism, one uh, uh, Pope John Paul who could reach out and was beloved by uh, uh, by the Poles, uh, who were themselves undertaking uh, one of the probably the most prominent challenges to Soviet control over Eastern Europe uh, since the Prague Spring in 1968. So uh, I think the Holy See for uh, Reagan and his uh, lieutenants really represented kind of a sword, a, a religious sword pointing at the heart of Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, at the legitimacy, the very legitimacy of uh, of uh, communism as a form of governance, uh, and especially one that had certain universal uh, global ambitions. And likewise for, for Margaret Thatcher, uh, Reagan found a uh, a partner who shared many of his criticisms of modern liberalism, uh, of uh, the ways in which it had elevated uh, social goods and the provision of social goods, and in particular, uh, large welfare, welfare states above what they saw as the 
uh, paramountcy of, of the of the family and of the nuclear family. And he also found someone that for the most part was willing to go along with him in taking a more hardline position toward uh, the Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact allies. In addition, and I think this is something that our book does really well, uh, both uh, Reagan and Margaret Thatcher came into office and, and really the the you know, the mandate that they felt they had received from voters was to unleash the uh, collective capacities of their societies uh, through the free market. And so whether it was within their own domestic context, where both were seen as reformers, were uh, very intent on deregulating their economies, uh, I think thus far historians have, have focused for the most part on their impact on their, their own societies. And one thing that I think our book does very well uh, with various chapters on international economics, uh, uh, on the importance of trade and intellectual property rights in countries as diverse as uh, the People's Republic of China and Brazil, is that Reagan felt a certain alliance of what you might call neoliberal practitioners in the 1980s that sought not only to transform their domestic societies, uh, to increase the role played by private capital and private enterprise more generally, but this also had really important implications for the relationship that the United States uh, and what would become the European Union uh, had with the rest of the world, and in particular developing nations. Uh, which uh, in, in many ways would be uh, encouraged and at some junctures uh, almost compelled uh, to adopt many of the economic practices uh, that we associate with government austerity today in exchange for continued access to Western financial markets. Uh, so this is a story that we don't, uh, you know, uh, has not been emphasized in previous uh, works of history. And I think it's one that that our edited volume really sheds important light on. And I think the authors in the book also draw out some of the important points of contradiction uh, and complicate our understanding so that we can see how on the one hand, for example, in the Reagan-Thatcher relationship, uh, it is so close for all of the reasons that John just outlined. But of course, they also diverge pretty critically on some important policy issues. For example, one of our chapters deals with uh, the dispute over Reagan's attempts to impose extraterritorial sanctions on a gas pipeline that was in the process of being constructed from Siberian uh, oil gas fields out to Western Europe, a theme which uh, resonates today in late January 2022, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, this was an attempt by the Reagan administration to punish the Soviet Union, but it was perceived by, for example, Margaret Thatcher as being directly opposed to the interests of the United Kingdom, uh, and in particular, some of the major industrial concerns, which in the early 1980s were hurting uh, and needed the business, even if it was constructing a Soviet natural gas pipeline. And Thatcher ultimately prevails over Reagan. There's also great stories in the book by some other authors about the extent of their dis distinct disagreements over uh, the nuclear weapons question, 
Ronald Reagan was, I think we know at his core now, a nuclear abolitionist, whereas Margaret Thatcher saw nuclear weapons as the only thing that were keep, was keeping Europe at peace and certainly keeping the United Kingdom safe. And so their views on that issue were pretty diametrically opposed. So the, the chapters, I think, also show us the complexity of these types of relationships between leaders and relationships between countries, uh, where, you know, even if you largely agree, are, are treaty allies, personal friends, you still might have national interest questions, which, which actually are at cross purposes. Very well said. Again, we're focusing on relationships. And in the book, there were discussions about President Reagan and his meetings with Gorbachev in Switzerland and also in Iceland. Uh, can you give us those significance of those meetings? Well, I think this is a case where Reagan's ability to work constructively and at times dramatically with foreign leaders who did not necessarily share his ideological predispositions, who uh, may have disagreed with him even more fundamentally uh, than Margaret Thatcher did at times about the way in which societies should organize themselves, uh, the ways in which international society itself uh, should operate, uh, really redounds to his credit. And I think there's, uh, it's, it's nowhere more apparent than in his relationship with Mikhail Gorbachev. And so we have a number of chapters that look not only at this relationship, but also at Reagan's vision, his kind of theory of victory in the, in the Cold War. And uh, many authors have emphasized the extent to which Ronald Reagan and his, uh, uh, and, and his administration sought to, quote unquote, win the Cold War, to, to attain victory over the Soviet Union. And I think we see in his uh, you know, personal symmetry with Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, they met uh, you know, no less, uh, you know, uh, uh, met in Geneva and Reykjavik in Washington, D.C., as well as in Moscow, uh, towards the end of Reagan's presidency, uh, his ability to develop trust, to develop a personal rapport uh, with a Soviet leader who who really arrived at the initial summit, uh, assuming that Reagan, you know, having a very low opinion of Reagan, believing him to be, you know, primary, uh, primarily uh, a sort of product of the American political system uh, of a uh, American conservative movement that Gorbachev thought to be uh, terrifically hidebound and uh, incapable of adapting to circumstances of being, in, you know, intellectually rigid, and finding that over the course of multiple summits with Reagan, uh, that this was a somebody that he could work with, uh, b somebody with whom uh, he could actually enjoy the process of give and take, uh, who would. Uh, you know, disagree uh, when they had disagreements, but do so in a way uh, that was candid, that was uh, fair, and that was challenging. And eventually, I think, gave both men uh, the sense that this was somebody with whom they could take risks. And for, it, you know, two international statesmen, the leaders of the two great superpowers of the Cold War, the ability to take risks uh, to be able to perhaps go a little further than their domestic constituencies felt comfortable with uh, was, I, I think, just an incredible achievement on, on both sides. 
for Ronald Reagan, many of the neoconservatives who brought him into office, who believed that Jimmy Carter lacked the cutting edge necessary to deal with uh, with the Soviet counterparts, they were in many ways aghast at the extent to which Reagan and Gorbachev discussed not only a relaxation of tensions, uh, increasing economic and social ties between the two superpowers, but at Reykjavik in Iceland, the prospect of uh, dismantling their strategic nuclear weapons and even wholesale nuclear disarmament, which was, uh, I think incredible, and we see from the documents uh, the response within the Reagan administration, as well as from uh, Gorbachev's military advisor uh, advisors. They they were absolutely gobsmacked. They were uh, they they thought that this was incredible. Uh, so I think in this this relationship, uh, you see first of all Reagan's sense that the Cold War was 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 less about defeating the Soviet Union than transcending it than encouraging Soviet leaders to eventually see the world the way Washington did, the way that Reagan and his closest advisors, such as Secretary of State George Shultz, did. And I think nowhere was this more apparent than in that personal, uh, uh, call it almost uh, a kind of of, uh, partnership between uh, Reagan and Gorbachev. But I think this is something that Simon could speak to as well, given that he's uh, he's written a fair amount about U.S.-Soviet relations himself. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, analytically, I take a somewhat more cynical view uh, than my, my co-editor. Uh, I think there is a big story to be told here about the Reagan administration pressing the American advantage uh, and recognizing that in Mikhail Gorbachev, they were dealing with an individual who was growing less and less able to resist uh, for the simple reason that he needed foreign policy successes, even if the, that success looked like putting his name to a pretty strikingly unequal treaty like the INF Treaty of 1987, which saw the Soviet Union destroy almost four times as many uh, intermediate range nuclear weapons. Those are weapons with ranges between 500 and 5,500 uh, miles. <clears throat> then did the the United States and also ceded a massive advantage in air and sea launch nuclear weapons in the European theater to the United States in the late 1980s. This was uh, this was an individual for whom domestic politics were going so strikingly badly uh, as his hallmark reform programs of glasnost, that's sort of political liberalization and perestroika, which is economic restructuring, were really hitting bump after bump in the road. So I think on the one hand, you have, as John rightly said, the ability of the two to do serious business, um, to see the other as acting in good faith, which if you look at sort of the trajectory of U.S.-Soviet dialogue throughout the Cold War, uh, that was certainly far from always a given, uh, but also a recognition in Washington and Moscow alike that the United States was really sort of in the driver's seat, so to speak. And I think there was really little that Gorbachev could do, especially by those late summits in Moscow or the final summit at Governor's Island, um, to really change the course of that. Um, and I think the chapters in the book illustrate really nicely the extent to which 
That's, of course, a, a story about the Cold War contest between the two superpowers, but this is playing itself out really around the globe. Uh, democratization is taking hold, not just in uh, the Soviet Union, uh, but also in the Philippines, for example, or certain parts of, of Latin America. So this is about bigger trends, I think, that the diverse chapters in the book illustrate with which both superpowers are, are grappling, but which in many ways the United States is riding. Now we're going to switch and look at events. Was President Reagan surprised at how fast the Berlin Wall fell? Absolutely. Uh, he said in the 1980s that he didn't think that he would live to see the end of communism. Uh, he said publicly that he thought that this would be perhaps as soon as 60 years, so 2040s. Um, I think it would have it definitely surprised him uh, that he lived to see the Berlin Wall come down in late 1989, uh, and of course to see the, the Red Star come down for the last time uh, over the Kremlin in, in late 1991. Uh, he was very much, I think, focused on positioning the United States as advantageously as possible within the Cold War during the 1980s because he expected that it would continue for quite some time. And indeed, when a lot of American intelligence analysts, for example, looked at Mikhail Gorbachev, they saw him as someone who was preparing the Soviet Union to fight the Cold War for the long haul. And indeed, they were not entirely incorrect when it came to the motives behind Gorbachev's reforms in foreign and domestic policy. Here was a Soviet leader who believed that the way that he could get the Soviet Union back on track, if you will, was to reduce tensions with the United States in order to buy himself breathing space, especially economic breathing space, uh, and of course to capitalize on some liberalization reforms in the economy in order to make it more effective all around. As John said, you also see similar phenomena under, uh, taking place in the People's Republic of China at this time too. So I think Reagan was absolutely surprised by the speed with which uh, the entire sort of Soviet sphere of influence and indeed communism in the Soviet Union came down. After doing this project, what message would you want the audience to leave with concerning President Reagan? I think that Ronald Reagan occupies a great deal of sort of space in Americans' historical memory. Um, he's sort of lionized by some on the right, demonized by others uh, on the left. And I think that both of those archetypal images of Ronald Reagan are, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, caricatures. I think that what the book shows and what all the authors uh, whose work is within it show is that there were so many facets to the Reagan administration. There were successes and, of course, there were failures. Uh, there were really great ideas and there were boondoggles. Uh, and that like most of us, Reagan the individual, Reagan the president, and the Reagan administration uh, really contained multitudes. So I would hope that readers of this collection uh, would come away with a greater appreciation for all of the variation and nuance within the Reagan foreign policy, for example, 
understanding some failures, for example, in dealing with Latin America, at the same time as appreciating successes, for example, in dealing with the Soviet Union. So I think to echo some of Simon's points, uh, it's I, I like this notion of, of Reagan and the Reagan administration containing multitudes. And I think one uh, goal that we had for this volume and bringing together so many different contributions, uh, 19 chapters covering you know basically every region on earth, is to get a better sense of the strengths and the weaknesses of the Reagan administration, uh, where they felt that they had achieved their objectives, where they felt they might uh, have come short, uh, but also maybe just a more nuanced view of uh, the man and the era itself. Uh, historians like to like to frequently say that men make their own history, but they don't necessarily do it as they please. And even somebody as powerful as uh, the president of the United States in the 1980s, which in retrospect we see is really the, the beginning of this unipolar moment of American, uh, you know, when the United States becomes an indispensable nation uh, for the rest of the world and, the, and uh, world affairs. Uh, even at this time, the, the American president could not impose, Reagan could not impose his uh, policy preferences on allies, on adversaries, that there was always a process of give and take of uh, forces, of, of truly tectonic forces in the global economy, in culture, things as diverse as the rise of the personal computer, uh, the increasing connectedness of, uh, of uh, our kind of planetary society. Um, uh, but additionally, just the, the kind of upswell of, say, democratic appeals in the Philippines are South Korea and Taiwan. And I think uh, in the course of the volume, you get a sense of a Reagan administration that, that came into office with certain uh, priorities, uh, in particular uh, to replenish the sources of power for the United States, both economic and military, uh, in order to compete more actively for the, with the Soviet Union, uh, both in Europe as well as in the developing world. Uh, but you also get a sense of an administration that could be quite ideological. And then uh, in, in terms of this anti-communist uh, imperative, this drive, but at the same time, uh, reach out. And in the case of, uh, of Reagan, to adjust his views of, say, the People's Republic of China. Uh, he came into office as a staunch friend of the Republic of China on Taiwan, uh, one who you know, really pilloried uh, the Nixon, Ford and Carter administrations uh, for opening relations to China and eventually normalizing them in 1979. And yet by 1984, Ronald Reagan uh, takes his first trip to a communist country on uh, an almost week long tour of uh, the People's Republic of China. And there's, uh, you know, the stri striking photography of he and Nancy Reagan, his wife, standing atop uh, the Great Wall of China, like they're just a couple of American tourists. And so I think you see, you know, over the course of, of these many chapters, uh, you know, examining so many different facets of Ronald Reagan's foreign policy, and I think by association, uh, his, his leadership. Uh, a kind of a sophisticated thinker, uh, somebody who was willing to adapt his views, but nonetheless uh, kept certain principles uh, consistently throughout his eight years uh, in office. And uh, hopefully readers will come away with a keener appreciation 
of Reagan's uh, accomplishments uh, of, you know, as uh, Simon put it, maybe his blind spots and his boondoggles, Iran-Contra foremost among them, uh, but certainly a better sense of the many different challenges that he and his administration grappled with. I think if I can add one more point, it would just be that there's there's one final message, which it would be remiss of us uh, not to address, and that is just how much more work there is to be done. Uh, I think that the authors whom we're showcasing in this book are, uh, you know, at various different stages in their careers. Some of their contributions are kind of brief encapsulations of existing work. Others are really first drafts of much longer projects that are currently in process. Uh, and I think the message that, that certainly anyone who's uh, interested in the period uh, ought to take away is that we're seeing archives opening. We're seeing so much uh, of, a, of a bounty of resources for people who are interested in this uh, period. So, so perhaps the, the big message is also sort of watch this space uh, because there's a really rich body of, of material for historians, political scientists, and other scholars who are interested to start really getting at the Reagan administration directly through the records, um, thanks to declassification around the world, uh, really offering us that insight. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. What is your next project? So I'm currently finishing... Uh, a book on the history of nuclear nonproliferation and U.S. grand strategy uh, that Stanford University Press will be publishing uh, this summer, summer of 2022. Uh, the title will be The Nuclear Club, How America and the World Police the Atom from Hiroshima to Vietnam. Uh, and once that's wrapped up, this has been a, a long project that emerged, originated with my doctoral dissertation. Uh, I will uh, be beginning a, a new book project on the history of U.S. PRC economic relations since uh, the 1970s. Well, as I said, my first book, Engaging the Evil Empire, came out in the fall of 2020, and it's about U.S.-Soviet relations in the first half of the 1980s. Uh, I'm now at work on a project which is an international history of the Warsaw Pact, uh, using archival records uh, from intelligence services, military records, diplomatic records, and domestic political records from all of the PACT's uh, members. That project is tentatively uh, called On Guard for Peace and Socialism, the Warsaw Pact, 1955 to 1991. Uh, and I am right now in the process of, of researching that, traveling to archives, um, and I'm hoping to have a, a book out sooner rather than later, but it is indeed a heavy lift. Those sound like great projects. We'll be waiting for them. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Deidre.